Auerbacher, Holocaust survivor and witness to the Nazi time, tells us about her early years growing up in Germany, her deportation and time at a concentration camp, and now her role in educating youth through her living history. Join us to hear more about Inga Auerbacher and her experiences. Inga Auerbacher, welcome to English Breakfast. I'm so happy that you could join us today. It's a real honor. Thank you so much. It's an honor for me, actually. And your tea was good, too. Well, you're in Göppingen for a fairly short visit. You've been here several times before. What's your connection to Göppingen? Well, my mother comes from Jedenhausen. They're an old family, the Lauchheimer family. Jedenhausen was at one time 40% Jewish. Yes. And uh, my grandparents, the Lauchheimer family, were among the first to settle in Jedenhausen more than 200 years ago, and the last Jewish family to stay. And I spent, let's say, two out of the three years, something like that, uh, of my childhood, always with my grandparents. It's a long story, but I have very good memories of especially Jedenhausen. I also lived in Göppingen, too. Oh, okay. How would you identify yourself in terms of your cultural background? How would you describe it? I'm a human being. Yes, I mean, I have the Jewish faith. If I would be asked, I would say I'm Jewish first. Because, you know, we were chased out of so many countries. Of course, now I'm a very proud American. I'm a citizen of America. They accepted us. And I'm very proud of that and very grateful to the country that we were invited to come in. Religion is something you can take with you. It's portable. But the country you live in, you may be chased out or you leave. So that is not so permanent. I was a citizen of Germany maybe six months of my life. I was born December 31, 34. So in 35 already, we lost our citizenship. Wow. Even though my father fought in World War I was wounded at the Iron Cross. My great-grandmother was one out of 14 children. She had four brothers who were in World War I and two died for Germany. It didn't matter. It's incredible to think yeah. of those times and how segregated they forced people to be that were neighbors and that lived together. And that's what I like about America. I live in the borough of Queens, which is the most diverse place in the whole country. We have five boroughs in New York City, and one of them is Queens. And I live in a row house. In other words, the houses are attached. We are very much congested in New York. Very little space, very little space to grow anything. A little tiny backyard, you can't, maybe you can grow some chives or something, a little parsley. I don't do anything because I don't have a green thumb. And I live between a very devout Muslim family from Bangladesh. On the other side, my wall touches a Hindu family from British Guyana. Now it's called Guyana, Republic of Guyana. They came originally from India, and they settled there maybe 100 years ago to take care of sugarcane plantations because they could stand the heat. And it's very hot and humid there. And other people could not work there, many other 
left, and they lived there about a hundred years in little Indian villages. And then comes the Christian house. So in four houses, wall to wall, we have the four religions of the world, and we get along. Mohammed, my Muslim neighbor, is fantastic, and the other neighbors as well, and we all talk to each other, and it's a very good uh, relationship, and we learn from each other. I go many times to the Hindu temple. I know a lot about the Hindu religion. I've been to many mosques. I don't mind that, and they come to my temple too. Well, you seem like an incredibly open person for different cultures, different ways of living, and that sounds like a really ideal situation. That, well, it's the only way yeah. we can exist in yeah. the future. If we don't learn from each other, we are not going to survive in this age. We're not. Killing each other is not going to solve the problem. And hate, it's not going to solve the problem. It's like coming back to Germany. Can I hate forever? No. There's a new generation here today. I have wonderful friends here. Wonderful. Maybe better than in America. And uh, I'm always asked, do you forgive us? And then I hesitate. I think the crime of the Holocaust is something so hurtful and terrible that only God can forgive the killers. But I feel the past is gone. I cannot change it, but I can change the future. I can try. To make something new. Something new. There's a new generation growing up today that, for the most part, it's not a hateful generation, and I want to keep it that way. I know there are rumblings today already, too, but I hope the good will outdo the bad. You're also an educator, so traveling around here in Guppingen, for instance, taking part with youth, mm-hmm. um, maybe you can tell us a bit about your activities and why you decide to, to go on all these trips and to give all these educational tours. Well, it's not just education. I mean, my main career was being a chemist, and writing and speaking is more of my mission. Mm-hmm. Um, since I'm retired, I can do certainly more of it, but when I was working 38 years in medical research and clinical work, there was very little time to do anything. Why do I do it? Because there were one and a half million Jewish children killed, and those three million children's eyes still haunt me. I don't want them to be forgotten because their story was mine and mine was theirs. But among them were also, there were six million Jews among those one and a half million and total of six million Jews. I also like to talk about there were five million others. There were a total of 11 million people killed at that time. They also should have a voice, the Sinti Roma, the uh, Jehovah Witnesses, the people with different sexual orientation, uh, physical and, uh, and, and uh, psychological difficulties, some priests, um, some Poles too. Uh, all those people should be remembered. They all were human beings, had the right to live. And I'd like to have my very small uh, voice heard uh, to educate, yes, to make this a better world, to, ha- to create more understanding. I go to many places in America, too, where they have never seen a Jewish person. And I ask the children, what is it to be Jewish? 
Oh, they start thinking. Oh, it is, it is. So I finish their sentence. It's a religion. It's not a race. We have black Jews. We have Indian Jews. I was in the synagogue in New Delhi. They prayed just like me, maybe even more religiously. Chinese Jews. Even Michelle Obama, she has a cousin, maybe a second, third cousin. I don't know how closely he's related. He's a rabbi in Chicago. And you can see him on the internet. You put in Black Rabbi Chicago, very religious. You can convert. We don't look, seek for converts if you want to do it. It's not so easy. Religions unfortunately separate people. But the underlying thing is always to be human. I used to have, many years ago, an Indian boyfriend, and when he was asked, sometimes you have to put on race. You know, they used to have that. In a census, yeah. Yes, and things and questionnaires. So he would put on human, and I like that. You belong to the human race. That's the most important. That's the bottom line. I think a lot of the time, a key to understanding one another is also to have that contact, to have room to be able to interact with one another. I tell people, if you get a bunch of flowers, a bouquet, roses are beautiful. But if you get a bouquet of many flowers, I think it's more beautiful. And we are a bouquet of flowers. So diversity is something that we should all cherish. Now, I want to get back to some of your other activities and maybe a bit more about your biography. But why don't we start with the book that you wrote? Yeah, I've written six, so you want the first one, (laughs) which is in I'm a Star. Tell us about Um, about how you started to put things on paper and in what language do you write in originally? I write in English. Mm -hmm. It's easier for me. But I think in both. Sometimes you get so confused. Uh, One word comes out better in German and another one better in English, but I do write in English. Uh, That comes easier for me after 70 years in America, so it's a long, long time. And really, I hardly went to school in Germany. I never even finished my first grade here. That's amazing. I mean, and after the war, there was very little schooling. Yeah, I had to catch up. I lost eight years of schooling in my life. Eight, because I was sick after the war with tuberculosis because of the uh, camp experience. I was very sick. But it didn't stop you for getting. Oh, I education. would write in my bed because uh, I had to be in bed a long time. Terrible injections, chemotherapy. But nothing stops me. If I can do it, you know, I'm not a superwoman either, but I try, you know. My first book, it started really, um, we didn't talk really very much at home about this, very little. But there was a first world gathering of Jewish Holocaust survivors in 1981 in Jerusalem, and I decided to go. And I've been writing little poems and things like that to keep myself busy, especially when I was sick. And I wrote a poem We shall never forget. And I worked in the hospital at that time. And there was a woman, this was in a nurse's dressing room. The the operating suite was on the same floor as my lab. And I heard her speaking. She's a singer, and she sings in nightclubs. And I came out. I said, oh, excuse me, you're an artist? You sing? Yeah, sure. And can you write music? She said, of course I can write music. So I said, would you mind look at at one of my poems. 
And she did. I said, look, there's a big uh, meeting coming in Jerusalem. I would like this poem to be set to music. Within one day, she had the music. And it became the only original song presented at the first world gathering of Jewish Holocaust survivors. And she was a very proud Catholic of Italian heritage. Her name is Rosalie Comintucci. She married an O'Hara, an Irish man. So she wrote uh, this beautiful song. And then I decided um, I wanted to do some more. And I met uh, another person who wrote four more songs with me. He recorded them. And then I decided I want to write a book about my life. But how do you go about it? So I have a very good friend, a distinguished professor at City University in New York. He said, do it from a child's point of view. You were a child. I was seven years old. I was in the camp, Terezin, Czechoslovakia, between seven and ten. And I said, well, maybe I should do it that way. So I wrote some little poems. Because children do not like to read 18 pages, if you can put <laughs> it into 18 lines. So out came these poems and prose and and somebody made some pictures for me, and I went around trying to uh, get this thing published. I went First, I went to the children's librarian, and I sat with them. I said, can you take a look at this? They said, oh, you should go. But I, what do I know about publishing? I'm in the laboratory. I sat with the children. What do you want to see in front cover? What do you like to read in those little chairs? I sat with them. And I started to put the book into some form, and I went to eight publishers. Four, they sent back immediately, and the worst copy out of the eight was Simon & Schuster, big company in New mm -hmm. York, very mm -hmm. prominent. And guess what? They called me in. They want to see me at my discretion, whenever I can come. I said, I'll come right away. <laughs> I nearly fell off my chair. Yeah. And then they sat around, and uh, it took three years uh, to get it published because the editor they gave me, she was pregnant, and then she didn't come back. It's a long story. But it became really a very famous book in eight languages, the main languages of the world, got prizes. Now it's going to be reopened in America. It's by Penguin. Now, Penguin is the biggest publisher in America, very prominent mm -hmm. publisher, yeah. Penguin Random House. But I've written others, the sequel, and I wrote a book about two black girls, friends of mine, who were track stars, totally different, uh, formed the first black girls track team in New York City called Running Against the Wind. They also experienced prejudice. So the wind is prejudice. I mm -hmm. wrote a medical book, Finding Dr. Schatz, Man Who Saved My Life, The Co-Discover of the Antibiotic Streptomycin, and I wrote one novella about a lady truck driver. So it has the gamut. Oh, okay. And one with a Polish Catholic girl who was in labor camps. If you would like, I could read that first poem of the song, We Shall Never Forget, if you would like me Wonderful. to read it in yes, English. Yes, absolutely. And also, well, that's how it began. And then I would like to read also the poem in German, the German version of Ich bin ein Stern, published by uh, Bells Verlag, which is also a very good publisher. Now the poem goes like this, and that's how it all began, my career in publishing world. I mean, I published some other poems before, but I don't call myself a pub poet, whatever. I, I like to write things, and uh, I like to write what is called epic rhyme, uh, telling a story. 
It happens to rhyme. My mother always said, a poem has to rhyme. And it has to touch your heart, mainly. It doesn't have to be difficult, but you should get some feeling out of it. She was a good poet herself. So here's the poem, We Shall Never Forget. Out of ashes, our spirits rise. Tears rain down from the weeping skies. We have suffered and endured the fire, immense horrors and miles of barbed wire. History's greatest evil in hell. We all bear witness, we're here to tell. The world was deaf, where was the light? There seemed no end to the long, long night. We will always remember, we shall never forget. Trumpets of joy sound freedom's call. Love for God and man above all. We shall never forget. Minds were dulled by bombs of hate. Only the hero cared about our fate. We saw the truth. It began to unfold. You may kill the body, but never the soul. Here we are with honor and pride, a new generation at our side. The silent voices join us today. Never again, we hope and pray. Inga, you were witness to the infamous Crystal Night. Tell us a little bit about that time. That was only the beginning, Crystal Night, the start of the Holocaust in November 9th and 10th, 1938. By us, it happened November 10th. Of course, a father, my father, my grandfather was sent to Dachau, even though proud citizens of Germany. Of course, then afterwards, Jewish children were not allowed to go to school where they lived. After Christian night, we sold a house in Kippenheim, moved in with my grandparents, hoping to get out to Jedenhausen. And then school started. There was one school in Württemberg, in Stuttgart, for Jewish children. We're not allowed to go to school. My father took me in the beginning. You had to have permission, too to go to to travel. You could not travel from city to city. Incidentally, going back, my father took me in the beginning with a bicycle to go to Göppingen, to the train, and then go uh, to Stuttgart, right. to that one school, mm-hmm. the Hospitalstrasse. I think it was 36 in Stuttgart. Then the whole thing came with the star. From the age of six, you had to wear the yellow star. Everybody. You had to buy the stars. We had to pay for the broken glass in the houses, crystal night. You had to pay for everything, everything. Everything that was done to you, you had to pay for. You had to pay for. Mm -hmm. Even to go to the camp, you had to pay. So later on, when the transports began, we were also ordered in the transport. We got out in the last minute because my father was a disabled war veteran. The first transport went late November into December to Riga in Latvia. And my grandmother was in it. My grandfather had died already. Uh, thank God. Natural causes, whatever you call natural causes. He wasn't so old yet. But he came back from Dachau. He couldn't believe his beloved Germany had forsaken him. He just mm. couldn't believe. He couldn't find his voice anymore. So they all went and they took away our house. They didn't buy it. They just said, get out. And then we settled in Göppingen in the Metzgerstraße, where some Jewish houses. There was a big factory there, the Geschmai factory, and we were living in their house, filled up with Jewish families. You couldn't live just anywhere. There were some Jewish children still from mixed marriages living in Göppingen in the beginning. I would go with them because my parents had to work some slave labor. 
in a women's undergarb factory, sewing corsets and stuff like that. And my father became the cutter. He never did that before. My father was a textile merchant. My mother became a seamstress. And I went by myself with, with those children, but sometimes they didn't want to go to school. And I, I went by myself, and I think about it, with the star, to go by myself as a six-year-old by train. And my father would say at that time, try to sit in such a way that you can naturally cover up your star. In other words, sit on the left window. And I remember once a woman saw me. There were always some wild kids there. You know how children are, heckle me, you dirty Jew, and so forth. And a Christian woman walked by me. She had a little bag, a brown paper bag with something in it. There were rolls, probably her, her lunch for the day. And she put it next to my seat and walked out. To me, that was one of the greatest things, the righteous Christian, without a name. She was not going to be a bystander. And this is very important. Elie Wiesel said, if you are just a bystander, you're equally guilty. There's no such thing. You have to take sides somehow because there's no such thing as indifference. Indifference meaning you, you don't want to do anything. You have to take sides. Either you're with or not. And I never got that lady. And I talk about her wherever I go. She didn't know me. I didn't know her. I never knew her name. But I remember her in every lecture that I give. There was one other lady like that. My grandmother had a maid, good friend too, for many years, over 20 years. Her name was Teresa. She was Catholic. And she came in the middle of the night. She was in danger, believe me, and picked up two photo albums to save them for us, our prayer books and some little religious knickknacks. When we came back, the Americans came to this part of Germany, and she didn't open the door right away, and the soldier shut through the door and killed her instantly. And I say, if there's a heaven, there are two wonderful women, a Christian and a Jewish woman, forever united, hand in hand, walking up there somewhere. One killed by a Nazi bullet. My grandmother was killed in the forest, in the Birkenike forest near Riga, product of war. I just met her grandson yesterday. Oh. He didn't know his grandmother, but we are the children, the grandchildren of two horrific acts. The great-grandchildren are still friends with me. That became family. And then the transport started. School closed after I had about six months of schooling. Almost all the children were sent out to the camps. Uh, we were still free at that time, but six months later, the first one was in 1941, in the winter, about December-ish. And then in August, we got our number again, Roman numeral 13-1-408. Yes, children always ask me, show me your tattoo. Well, tattooing was only done in Auschwitz, in, not a, in any other camp. And yes, my tattoo... My number, I would say, is tattooed on my heart and soul. I'll never forget it. And we were sent to Terrazin. First, they collected us in the Schillerschule, in the uh, gym over there. I was seven years old, the youngest in a, close to 1,200 people. I was seven years old. And they said, open everything. They had tables set there. We were just now there. I spoke in the same hall with children all around me. What was it like to go back there Well, again? it was the second time I was in there. 
you know, I thought the room was a little bigger. When you're seven years old, things look bigger. It wasn't all that big, but filled up with people, you know, because they would gather 50 in this village, another 100 there to make the whole transport. And the collection was, the collection place was in Stuttgart at the Killesberg. And, you know, it came back. There was a, ch- a table sa- uh, standing there. And at that time, they said, open everything. And they noticed I had a little pin, a little Dutch boy pin. And one of them yelled at me and ripped that off. Du brauchst das nicht, wo du hingehst. Where am I going? Then he saw my doll, my doll. My doll was very precious to me. She was bought by my grandmother right here in Göppingen. She had only one grandchild by Kaufhaus Lent. I don't know what it's called today. It was Aryanized, whatever. It was a big uh, department store. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't read or write or hardly talk probably. And I saw some pictures. My mother loved movie stars. And there was one, a blonde-haired lady in blue eyes. I said, who is she? Because my dad looked like that. That's Marlene Dietrich, very famous German actress. So everybody knew I had a doll, Marlene. But later on, when I spoke, I have this PowerPoint presentation. One woman said, that's a Schildkrötpuppe. I said, yes. And do you know that that model's name was Inge? I said, what? My name, Inge? My parents gave me a very German name. So I wrote to the company, and sure enough, they did send me a new Inge doll because I gave the original to the Holocaust Museum in Washington. And they sent me one with brown eyes. You see, stereotyping. They think all the Jewish children, brown eyes. My mother had gray eyes. Her family were all blue-eyed. Now, my father had dark eyes. I said, no, my doll was blue-eyed and blonde hair. So we made a film about that. And she was made for the 36 Olympics with a special hairdo, the Olympic roll, they called it, <laughs> and gave it the name Inge because that was a very famous German name at that time. And we made this film, and I got a new doll that we used for the film, Blue Eyes and Blonde Hair, of course. In fact, she's right here. That's the doll they Ah. gave me. But the original is in the Holocaust Museum, and they recently actually made a little promo film to collect money for for the museum, and they showed the original. She's very brittle at this point. But I took her to the camp. She was in my arms as I arrived, and that she was in my arms when I arrived in America from on the boat, the Marine Perch. So she managed to survive with she you. She survived. <laughs> She's an old lady like me, a little more brittle even than I am. I just was in Auschwitz-Birkenau. I've been there a few times. I've been back to my camp. And Auschwitz is a huge place. It, it's the Auschwitz camp, and then there's Birkenau where the gas chambers were, and uh, the crematories and so forth. And it's two kilometers away, and I'm walking there at the beginning of Birkenau, and I hear German spoken. What? German in Birkenau, where a million people were killed. One million people. It's a very big cemetery. I mean, the place is filled. You're walking literally on ashes. And many of my family and friends are there, and by the grace of who knows what, I'm here today. By luck, really by luck. And I go over to these people. I say, oh, I'm German too. Wo kommt ihr her? Frankfurt. Okay. And they had a a guide there who spoke German. He was German too. And you know what we did almost instantly? We embraced. Embraced. Wow. And this hellhole 
filled with the ashes of one million Jewish people, I could have said, I don't want to talk to you. You killed my family. You killed my friends. No. We embraced, and we almost cried. We took a picture together. I still have it. I didn't write to them yet because I've been so busy traveling. And that's what I feel. I can't change the past. I can't. It, it will be there for thousands of years. It will. But I can change the future. I can try. And I do want to become friends again with these people. I do. Who had nothing to do with this. I have wonderful friends here. And that's my uh, idea of why I come here. Life in the camp was, of course, very difficult. Between 41 and 45, we had 140,000 people. Now, Terezin, or in Czech, or Theresienstadt in German, was a kind of a special place. It was a whole little city, a town, built by Emperor Joseph II in memory of his mother, Teresa, Therese, who was a vehement anti-Semite, by the way. It had nothing to do with where we were going, but it was just a garrison town, late 18th century, Some people had lived there, actually very poor people, about 7,000. They got rid of them, told them to leave, and they put us in. So the whole place was surrounded by these high brick walls, barbed wire, and wooden fences. And the intelligentsia was sent there of Europe, the best doctors, the best lawyers, the best artists, musicians, and highly decorated war veterans. Because they felt if anybody asked what happened to them, they're all in one place, they're safe. It was a transit place. You keep them a while there, and then you send them out to the killing centers. Auschwitz was the main one. And uh, we didn't have gas chambers there at that time, but they were being built at the end, not completed. Eichmann, who was in charge of the whole transportation scene, came many times, and I saw him there. Every time he came, more transports out, more, more. Most men, women, and children had to live separate, but they could still see each other. But the disabled war veterans lived in the special section. They could live together as a family, very primitive, only double and triple-deck bunk beds. Your bed was made of rough wood. You had a mattress out of wood chips. Mice, rats, fleas, and bed bugs, those were your companions. I remember making a bed for my doll and up second bunk where we lived, tiny room. You couldn't move around. You had no chair, no table, nothing. You ate in your place, and that was your home. And one morning I see this gray thing in there, a shriveled up mouse. Not even a mouse could live, didn't find enough food to live. Food was very scarce. Three times a day we had to stand online with our little cans in hand. And when you were there, did you have family with you? My, I was with my parents, mm-hmm. yes. Okay. But they separated many times children from their families, mm-hmm. too. We shared this tiny room with a family from Berlin. She was an only child. Her name was Ruth Abraham. Her father was half Jewish. He walked with a limp. All the people in that section were disabled war veterans. One had an arm off, one had a leg off, one had a draining wound still in the head, and worse, which I don't go into, even worse, wounds. And uh, she was two months older than I. She was brought up as actually as a devout Christian. Her father was half Jewish, the mother totally. So theoretically, if the mother is Jewish, the child is also. But she was brought up as a Christian. And we were very good friends. We went to the latrine together. We did everything together. She had the same doll. And in 19, there was a 
famous International Red Cross inspection. And they made a big deception for them. They were pushed into seeing one of these places. Is it true that people are being killed? So they chose ours. They painted houses to school, to playground. None of these existed. Even had a football game, a soccer game for them. A children's opera was played for them. And they actually, you know, they thought, oh, it's okay. They're incarcerated, but they can live. Nobody's being killed. They never showed them the crematory where over 30,000 were burned. Or many people died. We had, out of those 140,000 who were there from 41 to 45, two-thirds would be shipped out to the killing centers. Close to a third died there, where only a few thousand survived. They didn't question that. They didn't tell them that. And we had 15,000 children, 15, under the age of 15. Very, very few survived, very few. And especially after that inspection was just around this time of year, a high holidays, almost... Every other day, sometimes every day, transports went to the east. We didn't know where they were going, but we were scared of the east. Maybe it's even worse. We didn't know about killing, but you could sort of think about it, what was going on. But you you put it out of your mind. You had to live every day, and you made the best of it, even if you were hungry. And you almost ate grass. I mean, the vegetable we got was a little bit of turnip and a rotten potato, a little soup. What did we children do? We went in the garbage dump. We couldn't work. There was some slave labor, splicing mica for the women. They brought in some uniforms to be sprayed white, I remember, for the Russian, uh, in, uh, you know, for the battle in Russia. And I have a friend who was a little older. She had to stitch up uniforms with bullet holes. I didn't do anything. What could I do? We rummaged around in the garbage dump finding a little piece of turnip, a rotten one. Even we, we ate some dandelion leaves, you know, some green, just to have something. Hunger mm-hmm. was uh, just a horrible thing. And just as I said, around this time, the high holidays, people, you know, it was unbelievable. Especially we have a very high holiday, a, the highest one, Yom Kippur, just around now. It happens next week. We didn't have a real place to pray. They found some attic, small areas, and I remember that night how they prayed and fasted, even if they were hungry all day without any, very little food. They fasted, and they prayed to God. And they say, a prayer, O vinum our Father, our God, help us. Unfortunately, no help came. They put on their boots, went on the cattle cars, never to be seen again. At that time, too, they had a special selection for the disabled war veterans. According to the alphabet, Germans always do things, you know, according to rules. So my girlfriend's family was Abraham, we are Auerbacher, and our fathers went together to be inspected. And my father came back, he asked my girlfriend's father, did you go? to the lady with the typewriter? No. He said, well, she put a red circle around our name, and it meant life. She went to Auschwitz before her 10th birthday. October 21 would have been her 10th birthday. Of course, never to return. She gave me some of her doll's clothing. She said, someday you'll come to visit me in Berlin, 
and I'll come to Kippenheim to see you there or Jedenhaus, wherever I would be. And uh, I gave that to the Holocaust Museum, a little dress. She had the same doll. And one day I'm sitting at my kitchen table. I'm thinking, how did she feel when she went with her mother into the gas chamber? Because usually the mothers, they took the children, men went separate, maybe all the boys with them. In Auschwitz, they went to Auschwitz. And I uh, wrote a poem. And little did I know that some years later, I put a story in the Tagesspiegel online. I was looking for a picture of her, a family member, somebody, because she had Christian relatives, somebody had to survive, a Christian grandmother. No, but I couldn't find anything. So finally I made this plea to the Tagesspiegel in Berlin, which is a newspaper and online paper, and two people answered me. One was a reporter, an American. He was useless. He wanted the story. But the other one was a uh, genealogist, and she started to review the family. Lo and behold, she found some family members living in Germany today, and one of them had a picture when she was maybe three or four years old. That's all. I have it with me today, too. I want to read you how she must have felt. The poem wrote itself. It's called Hold Me Tight. Come with me, my child. Hold my hand. Be calm, my child. Do not try to understand. Don't be afraid, my child. Walk with pride. You know your mother is here at your side. Hold me tight. Day has turned to night. Soon we'll see the light. A mother is giving hope to her child till the very end. No, no, don't look at the chimneys. See the blue sky. My arm is around to protect you. Don't cry. Come close. Let the blows fall on me. There'll be a day when again we'll be free. Hold me tight. Day has turned to night. Soon we'll see the light. Give all your belongings to them. Quickly undress. One day soon we will again have happiness. Sleep, my child. I have no more to give. Oh, God! Oh, God! We're not going to live. Hold me tight. Day has turned to night. Hold me tight. How I got the title, I am a star, it has a double meaning. I'm a star is not just, I'm a Jewish star. I'm turning the yellow star that we had to wear as a symbol of evil, of their bad people, their ugly people, that I had to wear from the age of six on to separate me from other human beings. And I decided to call it I'm a star because I'm turning this negative symbol in their eyes into something positive. For me, every human being is a star. So when I say I am a star, I'm something special. So is every human being. The German poem, the translation, is really used in many, many places. It's in Stuttgart at the memorial where the tracks are. They use it all over Germany, this poem, in many, many commemorations. So I'd like to read you that one also in German from the version Ich bin ein Stern by Bells Verlag. Stern am Himmel, ein Stern auf der Brust. 
Mama, ich weiß, ich hab's längst gewusst. Kein Zeichen der Schande ist er mein Stern. Ich trage ihn mit Stolz, ich trage ihn gern. Ein Stern als Lohn, der höchste Preis. So war es immer. Ja, Papa, ich weiß. Es ist mir egal, was die anderen sagen. Ich will ihn für mich und trotz allen tragen. Ich bin ein Stern. Wenn sie über mich lachen, wenn sie mich schelten, für mich soll der Stern etwas anderes gelten. Sie starren auf mich, sie zeigen auf mich. Sie sind ohne Stern, der Stern bin ich. Sie sind von Gott die Sterne der Nacht. Auch mich hat er gemacht. Weine nicht, Mama, hör mein Versprechen. Niemand wird meine Seele zerbrechen. Ich bin ein Stern. Those are some great closing words for our show. Inga Auerbacher, yeah. thank you so much for coming by today. So many insights, a life well lived. Well, it's still going on, yeah. I hope. Yes. Like uh, Moses said, 120 would be the, the end. So I still have a few more years to go. Yeah, and very active and imparting your knowledge. It's just wonderful. Thank you so much for coming by today on English Breakfast. It was a real honor and pleasure having you here. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. That ends our program for today with guest Inge Auerbacher, Holocaust survivor and educator. It was a pleasure having her on the program. If you would like to find out more details about our programming or have a show idea, please feel free to contact me through social media. This is Angeline Fisher signing off for English Breakfast, wishing you the very best wherever you may be. Until the next time. <laughs>